Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today I am delighted to be joined by Oliver Morgan. Oliver Morgan is the Head of Academy Sports Science. Thanks very much for joining me mate. No worries mate, nice to be on here, thanks for the invite. How's things then? Yeah good, thanks, yeah good, just trying to navigate this crazy time that's COVID-19 lockdown as I'm sure we all are and you know the implications for work and personal life but I can't complain, I'm healthy and well so and it's been sunny in Glasgow as well isn't it the last few weeks so so, no, no, this is what it's well. always like. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't like this last summer, was it? But there you go, no, we've had no. the weather already, so can't complain. Uh, well, you, well, I suppose you have been here since January 2019, haven't you? So you came at the absolute height of winter in Glasgow, so it was a shock to the system, isn't it? It was, yeah. We, um, Me and my girlfriend moved up from, from Liverpool, and it snowed in Liverpool when we left. It stopped snowing on the way, and then we were here for about five minutes, and it started snowing again. <laughs> I think I think it snowed three times in the first week in our first week in January, so it was a bit of a, a shock to the system for sure. But now we're getting used to it. We'll come on to your role at Celtic, but we'll just take you back. You studied at Coventry and Liverpool John Moores Universities. So was it sports science you studied? Yeah, so I did my undergraduate at Birmingham, and then I started working as an intern at Coventry City Football Club, um, and I was I was working there um, as I said doing my internship was the first team. And uh, I started my master's degree then. I actually went to talent identification and, and that sort of side of things, which was really interesting. And that probably got, you know, that's what got me started thinking more about academies and development football. Um, and then from there, I went to Liverpool uh, and I've started a doctorate there as well uh, at Liverpool John Moores University. And I'm looking into agility, basically, agility and change of direction in, in elite youth football. Um, so, yeah, so that's keeping me busy alongside a, a busy job as well. Sports science is quite a wide-ranging role. You can call it sports scientist, you can call it strength and conditioning coach. Could you explain to the listeners exactly what it involves? Yeah, of course. So, sports science in in the applied world and, and you know in sport is you're basically a fitness coach. That's probably the easiest way of of explaining it, to be honest. And as you said, sports science is is quite varied. So, in terms of education, you learn a lot about the body. You, you know, in terms of biology. You learn about physics, so you learn about forces and how to produce force and different directions and the importance of that. You learn about nutrition um, and you go into quite a lot of detail about how nutrition works and how you digest food and break things down. 
Um, so, you know, sports science is obviously based in, in quite heavy science. Um, so you need that sort of basic background, I guess, of the body, you know, in general, yeah. um, and, and the many different aspects of that. Uh, and then you basically look to apply that knowledge in whatever domain you go into. So strength and conditioning coaches is, is predominantly more just, it is what it says on the tin, I guess, you're there to develop strength and condition the body. And another word for condition is basically just fitness. So again, it's just applying the knowledge that you have. So a lot of strength and conditioning coaches work in the gym, and a lot of sports scientists, even though they, they can be termed the same thing, there's a slight difference, I guess. Sports scientists tend to work more with data and strength and conditioning coaches are probably a bit more hands-on. But in football, they're, they're pretty much the same thing, I guess. But yeah, we use lots of data, so we collect a lot, collect a lot of data, which I'm sure you'll, you'll see You know, the first team lads wear in training, that you'll see them wearing heart rate monitors or GPS vests, so we get to monitor how far, how far they've run, how fast they've run, um, and lots of different variables, how much they, their heart has, has been beating and how hard they've been working. So we get to collect all this information together and we get to do a lot of testing as well to see where players are in terms of the, what we call their physical profile. And then we can we can try and work on their weaknesses and plan ahead and make programs really. So it is quite encompassing quite a few areas, but effectively it is it is that training the body and using data to help you train the body. Effectively, that's probably the bottom line. Were you still studying when you were at Coventry City? Yeah, to be honest, Martin, I haven't really stopped studying too much and that's kind of the way things go really um you know there's always new research and new studies into the body uh, and and specifically obviously i work with footballers and there's lots of research into football and and even within football then youth football um of different ages and obviously the body as an adolescent goes through the maturation process so we learn all about that and the importance of that and the effects that has on the body when training um, so there's, there's always there's always uh, information coming out, really. So you've got to try and keep your finger on the pulse as much as you possibly can. So, yeah, whilst I was at Coventry, I finished my, my undergraduate degree and I started my master's degree into talent identification. And then when I moved to, to work for Liverpool a little bit later on, then I started my, my PhD or my doctorate. Um, and as I said, that's, that's looking into agility. So I used, I've used a little bit of the work that I did there and I've carried it on since coming here and well, What's the most important thing, Martin, is when, you, when you're learning and when you're uncovering this new information, it's then putting it back into your job all the time, which has been really helpful. So a lot of the stuff that I have done in, in the past and in the present, I'm, I'm, you know, I get to put into my job here at Celtic and make sure that what we're doing with our players is the most up-to-date, concurrent programmes and processes, really. It seems like not so long ago, sports scientists were sort of not frowned upon, but in Britain it was maybe not taken as seriously. But now it seems football's moved so fast, but within football, sports scientists, the fastest moving thing within that, because see if you're not up to date on it, because as you say, it's constantly changing, you quickly get left behind. Yeah, you know, if you if you go back to, you know, I don't know, 20, 30 plus years ago, the coach did everything, you know, yeah. from driving the bus to picking the team to bringing out the sponge and a bucket of water to doing the fitness work. And, you know, as time's gone on, you know, everything's just become a bit more detailed because the understanding's become a bit better. And I guess physiotherapy um, was probably the first main sort of area. You know, physios have been around for a long period of time. And, and fitness coach and sports scientists, they, they probably came around a little bit later. But, you know, from my time working in football the last 10 years or just slightly more, um, you know, it's definitely gone on leaps and bounds, especially in 
with developmental players. Uh, a lot of that in, in the UK has probably come around from what they call the elite player performance plan, the EPPP in England, and mm -hmm. that audit process, that injected a lot of money into into sport, basically, and, and into football. Uh, there was very tight um, criteria that you had to have to be a Category 1 team, a Category 2 team. And a lot of those were things, you know, it was just jobs, basically. So it created a lot of jobs for people. Uh, that was in around about 2011, 2012. Uh, and since then, it's, you know, things have just we've gone from strength to strength. But no, you're right. I, you know, sports scientists at one stage probably were frowned upon a little bit. I think we were known as limiters a little bit. It was like, oh, try not to do that and try not to do that. And we were always trying to bring the reins in a little bit. And we, we were known as the limiters, really. And so it was a bit of a negativity on some, on some behalfs. But I'd say that football in general has gone through its own process of becoming more professional. You know, if you look back yeah. to the late 80s, 90s, there was a massive drinking culture. And that's slowly been weaned out. If you look at some of the... You know, if you look at some of the managers over time in England, you had like Arsene Wenger and here you had like, you know, Martin and Neil, you know, they've, they've changed the way in which things have, have gone on in football clubs. And that's then gone hand in hand with sports scientists. And Alex Ferguson came out didn't he, and said, I think it was in his first autobiography, he said how big sports science was. And it's probably had the largest impact on his managerial career in sort of the sort of second half of his career to that point. So yeah, so uh, we're we're luckily now not sneered upon so much as we were, but no, I think there is definitely an important important place for us, and especially with with the young athletes. But if you look at a lot of the Premier League stuff and you know the English Premier League, a lot of the data that's coming out of games is dramatic, you know, drastically increased in terms of distances covered. Sprint distances have gone up fifty percent in a period of about seven years. High intensity running's gone up a lot as well, and you know we know that the modern game. You've got to look at the modern. Real Madrid's, Bayern Munich's of the you know recent era, Man City's, Liverpool's, you know, and even looking at our team here, we can see that you know James Forrest, Callum McGregor, Kieran Tierney, they're, they're athletes as well as football players, aren't they? Yeah, they're just professional athletes now that are really good at football. It's it goes hand in hand now because you can't get away with it anymore if you're not both. No, exactly, and you know we're at Celtics Academy. We're obviously trying to produce players for the next five years, the next ten years. So we don't know yet what the game's going to look like in five or ten years' time. So we've got to try and bulletproof our players to be prepared for whatever may come their way. You know, the window of, of growth is going to slow in terms of the physical demand, isn't it? It can't keep growing all the time, yeah. you know. But we've got to just try and make sure that we can get players from being a typical 13, 14-year-old boy to making their debut maybe at 20, 21 and playing 50 games a season. See, when you left Coventry, it's a team that's it should be bigger than it is, but you moved at the start of the 2011 season to Liverpool. That's quite a jump, so you must have been quite well thought of. How did the move come about? So, whilst at um, Coventry, I worked with, my boss there was somebody called Andy O'Boyle. Andy O'Boyle uh, is now the head of performance at the Premier League, so Andy's very well thought of. And Andy ended up getting a move to Liverpool, basically and there was another position available and they wanted Andy to recommend somebody. So sometimes it's who you know, isn't it? <laughs> but um, yeah, I managed to get an interview and, and sort of I took it from there. And I think what helped me a lot was was my research into talent identification whilst at Coventry. And that was at a time really where people used to work in academies as a stepping stone to go on to work for the first team. We're now working in academies is its own niche. You know, it, it comes with its own specific demands and specific characteristics as a person to work in it you know with, with children and, and young adults 
Um, so no, it was you know a big jump for sure. Um, you know, you go from a club that was unfortunately on a on a downward spiral, um, and they've actually just been promoted today, Coventry, uh, back up to the championship, yeah, which is that. which is nice to see. But no, definitely a, a big club that should be you know in a better position than what they are. And uh, Liverpool is a as a giant of a club, and you know the, the academy facilities there were far beyond the first team facilities at, at Coventry uh, and the Sky Blue Lodge. So no, a big jump for sure, but you know. Just got to go with it, Avenue, and be thrown in the deep end a little bit. Did you have uh, much uh, going on with Brendan Rodgers when you were there? Did you speak to him a lot when he was at the manager? Yeah, Brendan was. You know, Brendan comes from an academy background, doesn't he? Obviously, his time at, um, at Chelsea and, and other places, um, and he's always been big into bringing players through. You know, he's always been big on on having young players in his first team squad. So when Brendan was probably earlier on in his managerial career at Liverpool, would would come in. You know, we'd have just conversations in certain coaches' rooms and, and offices and he just walk in, sit down, listen to what you were saying and, and you know, and chip in the conversation as any as any other coach. And having that was fantastic. It was it was really, really good. And he certainly pushed Liverpool to a to another level, both in the Academy and the first team for sure. There's no doubt about that. And and everybody here as well speaks so highly of Brendan. And you can see he's had a very similar impact here as he did at Liverpool. Um, and you know, somebody that had so much time for everybody, for every member of staff. You know, people couldn't really speak highly of, highly enough of him, and, and I, I'd certainly agree with that for sure. He brought in some great stuff into Liverpool's academy and, and the club in and club in general. So no, it was, it was great. When you were at Liverpool, the two standout players that have come through in that time. Did you have many dealings with Raheem Sterling or Trent Alexander Arnold? I know Sterling came from QPR, but he still came through the reserves in that pathway, didn't he? He did, yeah. So, yeah, Raheem came, he was you know, young Raheem when he first came and he was one of the first sort of big signings in the academy football, really, one of the sort of most, most high-profile kind of signings. Um, and, yeah, Raheem was basically straight into the reserves or the under-18s and reserves. And uh, he was there for a couple of years before he then went to the to the first team. He made his debut, I think, in 2012. So we had him for that first season before he then started stepped up and went to the first team really and he was on like a fast track development I think everybody knew that he was going to play for the first team it was kind of more when that could happen and at the time Kenny Dalglish was manager um, and Liverpool was certainly in a transitional period and I think it it suited everybody for Raheem to then move to the first team and he progressed on well there made his debut and he did then very well under Brendan Rodgers so we we did have a season with him in the academy um, Trent more so, yeah. So we um, Trent from a, a, young, a very young age until um, he went to the under-18s and then he went up one pre-season actually um, with Ovier Jaria. He obviously went on loan to, to Rangers last year. Um, they both went to the first team and basically never came back. They just did well, went away pre-season tour and they never came back. So Trent kind of skipped that reserve or under-23s level a little bit really. He did come back to play games, but he kind of went straight to the sort of first team after the under-18s. But now I worked with him a lot and it was a really interesting sort of pathway and, and development process. But, you know, I think everyone's, you know, couldn't be happier with, with where he is now. And as a player, I don't think anybody ever sort of predicted the heights that he was going to get to and what he's achieved at such a, a, an early stage of his career. See, with those two guys, like they're obviously very talented footballers, but they 
you can tell they're like that. Maybe you see them go, yep, they can go at the top. But what about in terms of athleticism? Are they better on that side than the other players? And that's why they can make the fast track up? That's a good question. I'd say, I'd say they're both different. They're probably two good examples to have, I guess, because Raheem's somebody that, or was, you know, very good athletically as he was, talented as a footballer. And, you know, you could see that. And they're two very, very much intertwined together, those two um, parameters, you know, his ability to play as a footballer and his athleticism. You know, as a winger, you obviously need, you know, speed and pace and agility, and he very much had those. So for him, it was, you know, he was obviously a standout. With Trent, it was, I wouldn't say Trent struggled at all athletically at any point, but he was, a, you know, he was at a point very, very thin. He was, you know, a typical growing teenager, a little bit gangly, a little bit leggy. You know, people use the analogy of, you know, a giraffe on ice. I wouldn't say he was nowhere near that, but, you know, you can kind of get the picture that I'm painting a little bit. Uh, and he then developed a bit later on. We always knew he was quick um, and he could read the game really well. And I think his, his testament to him, really, how he's developed both technically, tactically, mentally and physically over the last sort of five years. But we could definitely see there was something there. He had a lovely sort of profile on the eye as, as an athlete, you know, he, he did play centre midfield at the academy, and then he, you know, the latter stages of his academy time, he started playing fullback because it was perceived that he had this lovely profile, you know, physically and and technically as a, as a fullback, you know, someone that could get forward, um, somebody that always had a wide range of passing. Um, but yeah, so realistically, his his, his progression as a fullback has, has definitely gone hand in hand with his his athleticism. You know, he definitely has the ability to play centre midfield, but because of his athleticism and some of his attributes, instead of being a good centre midfielder, he's an excellent right back. So yeah, so his athleticism definitely played a, a part in his, a big part in, in in his developmental career for sure. So it comes to January 2019, and as we said, you moved from Liverpool to Celtic to be the head of Academy Sports Science. Can you give us an idea of? what that role is and then give us an idea of coming from Liverpool to Celtic and how the facilities differ and are we far behind the English league in terms of sports science and academy? So as a role I'm, I'm here to kind of manage the whole sports science process from you know whenever we get players in and in the in the youngest age groups eights nines and tens up to reserves really um, and I help to manage the people in those processes people and those processes, sorry, and the strategies that we put in place um, to ensure they're as, as elite as possible. Um, and I guess the role really sort of came about through a bit of a divide, I guess, between where sports science in football is in Scotland and where it is maybe in England. As I mentioned earlier, the EPPP, because of that injection of people, injection of money, and obviously the, the broadcasting rights and media rights in the English Premier League and the money that that's infused into the game things have developed very very quickly and sports science was definitely one area that, that definitely developed very very quickly and unfortunately Scotland missed out on that a little bit because you get relegated from the English Premier League and you're going to get I think it's is it 120 million I think you get when you get relegated if you finish bottom of that league and I think the winners here you know what I'm not sure what we got exactly but it was probably less than 3 million in total from the Scottish Premier League so you can see obviously the difference in, in finance despite the fact obviously that Celtic are involved in European competition um, and having huge match day attendances there's always going to be some divide and 
and Scotland, Celtic are obviously by far the, the um, biggest club in terms of financial in, in, in Scotland. So, you know, if you compare Scotland to England, there's, there's certainly a divide there in terms of the finances and therefore some of the processes that happen. And I guess the club wanted me to come in and, and try and out bridge that gap, really. And that's what we've that's what we've tried to do. That's we've put in things in place that have, have tried to yeah bridge the gap and, and just push things forward. You know, Celtic are Celtic. They want to be the best in everything and be the you know be the leaders, be elite. And we certainly have aims and aspirations to to be you know not just up to where some teams are in, in England, but it's right up there competitively. And that's that's across the board. You know, I speak for the whole club there. That's in all areas, but specifically in sports science, that's something that I know is certainly achievable in, in, in a you know a reasonable space of time. In, in the last eighteen months, we've made huge, huge inward bounds into that, and um, and we've had some you know, some good success so far. So um, that's kind of the role, and I guess specifically between Liverpool and Celtic, uh, yes, there, you know there were differences in, in facilities and, and equipment and access. For sure, yeah. That's not me being um, speaking down about Celtic or anything. I think that's that's unfortunately just a little bit of fact. You know, Liverpool's academy was built in 1997. That's that's his own standalone building with eight pitches um, with an indoor facility. Um, and you know, if we compare that to to Barrowfield, unfortunately, we're you know we're just not on a comparable comparable level right now. Obviously, we've got the the Barrowfield project, which will be happening hopefully sooner rather than later. COVID-19 probably dependent in some regards and finances that way but you know at that stage you know we'll have an indoor facility a brand new AstroTurf a brand new gym excuse me and a, and some brand new equipment as well so we'll definitely be in a better place for sure I just guess it's probably in, in terms of scale and size it'll be slightly different but if you then compare Lennox Town Lennox Town's a fantastic training facility it's looked after very well the facilities there are excellent you know that's comparable to to the vast majority of other English teams sort of training centres really so that's probably the biggest comparison I guess the other biggest difference really is probably just numbers of staff English clubs have have lots of staff um, across the board whether that's sports science and medicine coaching um, backroom staff manufacturing staff uh, warehouse staff um, so that's probably the other biggest difference I guess and so that comes with some challenges and and, um, issues I guess but on the positive side you do you know get a very much a close tight knit and a family feel at Celtic you know you, you really do feel part of a of the tradition and the history here which is fantastic it's, that's something you can't buy you know that's something that's ingrained in this club So were you allowed to bring in more staff when you came in or did you did you get to pick and choose or was the, the sort of squad of staff you had enough for you or would you want to expand it? Yeah so when I first came in we had um I made the third member of sports science staff with the reserves and down. In comparison to Liverpool, when I left, there was 11 members of staff. Um, so, you know, quite a big difference. When I first went to Liverpool in 2011, there was three members of staff. So that's kind of showing you a bit of a comparison there. So one of the first things that we, you know, we wanted to do was, was to increase the number of staff to help increase the number of sessions that we could put on, you know, increase the contact time that we had with the players um, and, and, and really push on with, with everything else that we wanted to do. So we ended up bringing in a member of staff. We advertised for these roles and we had some fantastic applicants apply. And we, we advertised one role that was to work with our under nines up to our under 16s. So very much, you know, the, the younger stages of development. 
and we had 225 people apply. That just that just shows you the the pool that this you know club has. So uh, we employed someone called Janice Buchanan. Um, she's excellent. You know, she's a, a former gymnast. Um, she's worked for the club before as well, so she knows the club. She's from Glasgow, um, so she's been excellent, an excellent recruit. Um, we've also brought in a sports psychologist. So psychology is an area that is probably the next big area, really. So technically, yes, they come into sports science, but it's, it's kind of its own standalone subject as well. And where sort of sports scientists and fitness coaches were maybe 10, 15 years ago, that's probably where psychologists find themselves now. Um, it's certainly going to grow and grow for sure. But we all know the pressures that, that playing football can, can bring. Um, and we certainly know the pressures being playing for our football club can bring the expectation to win and the rivalries that we have. So if we're producing players to be in this pressure cooker of an environment, we know we need to provide them with the correct tools in order to deal with that. On top of that, you've obviously got pressures elsewhere from the media and, and other sources. So they, you know, they need to be, as I said, have the tools in order to prepare and, and deal with those. And on top of that, you know, the, the, the academy process and, and that development process comes with its own stresses. You know, they're still developing people, developing brains, developing bodies. So then, you know, they're, they're trying to make sense of the whole situation. And that in itself comes with pressure and stress and, and trying to move from one team to the next. So we've got to try and do our best and support these players. So again, we, we advertised as some fantastic applicants and we recruited somebody called Neil Addington, who's been a, you know, a fantastic addition. Um, so there were two of the main um, appointments that we made. And then we, we also then decided to bring in three more members of staff to spread across the whole academy. And we set up a link with the University of Western Scotland where we, we've appointed three PhD students and they're at the club for three years and very much treated as, as full-time members of staff. And what they do is they actually research into what we're doing at the club to make sure that what we're doing is the most elite possible thing, effectively. Um, and they do that to a very detailed, robust degree. So we, we can really make sure that we're achieving what we set out to achieve with the aims and objectives that we sort of set out for every player. So that's a fantastic process. It's great for them. It's great for the university. It's great for the club. It's a win-win situation for everybody. Um, so yeah, that, they were the five members of staff that we brought in to, to add to the department. So from December 2018, where it was just Scott Reddy, who were with the reserves, and Mark Maxwell, who were with the under-18s, we went from two members of staff to, you know, just over a year later, we've got eight. So, you know, it's a fantastic addition, really. You, you need good quality staff and lots of staff to be in and around players to try and provide that individual detailed levels of support. So it's been fantastic. We're back right from the top from Peter. Uh, and everybody in that group. So it's been a fantastic process to be part of, and Chris McCart's been excellent as well as the head of the academy in, in supporting this process. So I couldn't speak highly enough of, of the staff already here, really. Yeah, it sounds like you've got the backing of the club and you've managed to bring this team in. So the whole, when I went to the International Coaching Convention recently, it was all about Celtic building players to be Champions League players. Now, coming through the academy, they've had 19, I think it is, that have came through the academy and played in the Champions League group stages. So how do you set about building a Champions League player? What what characteristics make that and what sort of mindset makes an elite mindset? Yeah, so from from our sort of fitness and athletic point of view, we think there's four main characteristics that, that we think bring together any elite Champions League player. When we're talking about elite Champions League players, we're talking about winners. We're talking about players that have won the Champions League multiple times. You know, we're talking about your Maldinis, your Ronaldos, your Messis, uh, etc. You know, 
with Modric's and, and Zidane's. What, what 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 are the characteristics that that um, bring together all these? You know, what are the common things that, that bring all these players together? Well, there's four for us, and the first ones are you know they're all multi-directional athletes. It doesn't matter what position you're in; you're a multi-directional athlete. Even somebody like um, Katie, you know, he, he's a multi-directional athlete. Even though he's someone who's quite linear as a fullback, you know, you've still got to be multi-directional with different demands. So, you know, that's the first aspect. The second aspect is they need to be robust to play and perform multiple times a week. You know, for Celtic alone, you're going to be playing 50 games, aren't you? Because we're involved in um, European qualifiers. We're obviously involved in the league and we're, we go to the end stages of the domestic cups as well. So, you know, on top of that, you're going to have your international com- um, commitments as well. So someone like Callum McGregor, for example, is going to be playing 60 plus games a season, which is a frightening number of games, isn't it, to put in in a... Yeah. 11 month period effectively or 10 month period so you've got to be prepared to do that nobody wins anything by sitting on the bench or sitting on the on the physio bed so you know it's not just as well it's not just playing but it's performing isn't it there's expectations to perform and win multiple times a week so that's another area we believe as well that um, you have to produce repeated high intensity efforts and again that looks different doesn't it so that looks different from a, a full back to a number 10 to a centre midfielder to a centre back um, that they come with slightly different movement demands but everybody has to produce these high intensity bursts because we know that the total distance in a game which at the top end of the game you're probably looking at maybe 12 or 13 kilometres that's not really increasing much but it's the high intensity and sprint distance work within that 12 or 13 kilometres that seems to be continually increasing so we know we need to be able to bulletproof players to be, to be in order, uh, to be able to do it. And the, and the last or the fourth um, characteristic is having elite mindsets and elite habits. Now, this kind of is a gateway into the psychological side of the game for sure. But elite mindsets and elite habits for us um, is really important in the developmental side. Everyone has choices, you know. So, are you choosing to put you know, to eat the right foods? Are you choosing to sleep correctly? and sleep enough are you choosing to hydrate are you choosing to recover well enough are you choosing to work hard enough in training work hard enough in the gym so every, you know we need to try and instill these qualities in our players that they they're independent you know and they can go on and make these decisions when when they're not at the club you know as an under 18 player they'll get 12 meals a week so they'll get breakfast and lunch basically six days a week at the club so what are they then going to be choosing to do for those other meals? So, you know, can we provide them with education on nutrition? Can we provide them so they can understand the importance of being able to cook for themselves? You know, if they go out on loan, they could well be still living at home with mum and dad, but travelling, you know, on the motorway to, to whatever club they might be getting to, stopping off at service stations, you know, what choice are they making when they're making their coffee? Are they getting a, a box stand in Americana with a touch of milk or are they getting some high calorie vanilla latte with four scoops of vanilla syrup and six sugars or something or you know these are all the things that we need to try and instill in our players basically Uh, you know there's lots of examples I'm sure you've seen the one on social media that came out about Ronaldo recently when he went back to train at Juventus they did some physical testing and he was in a better physical position post lockdown than he was pre-lockdown this is someone that's 34, 35 isn't he Ronaldo he's you know he's an unbelievable athlete and but what underpins all that is these elite habits and it's getting into a habit and it's understanding this habit. So we try and create this, what we call physical development culture. So it's having this 
environment, this culture where people are continuing to develop. So we have things like pre-training sessions, for example. So the majority of our athletic development sessions will happen before the training session happens. So that might be a half an hour block, for example. I mean, we, we might be working on um, sprint mechanics or agility movements. Um, and it might be packed with lots of other areas like mobility and flexibility and activation. But it's getting them in the good habits. So when they come in to the club, they eat and that meal is an appropriate meal. So it's going to have... X amount of carbohydrates in it, a little bit of protein in it, for example, and some fruit and vegetables. They then got downtime then before the training session starts, and they're filling that time with, an, with something that's going to benefit them in the long term, effectively. So that's what we're getting them in good habits for. So when they do go to Lennox Town and they're involved in that environment, they're doing the right things because that's what Scott Bryan does. You know, that's what. Um, Callum McGregor does you know that's what those players do they'll be in the gym stretching they'll be activating their body they'll be working on strength core whatever it needs to be they'll be doing what they need as an individual player so it's getting them in that habit we're obviously a bit more prescriptive with the younger ages because they don't quite yet understand their body they don't know what their body needs and requires so we're giving them a vocabulary of exercises to do variety so they can understand which ones basically work for them and their body and everyone's got their sort of individual programs so say it's me and you Martin for example say I've got quite tight hamstrings I might have something or orientated around my hamstrings if you have you know if you've had a hip issue or a you know groin issue in the past for example you might have something slightly more tailored towards your your body um so this is kind of the, this is just some examples that we try to instill with our players to try and take them to the next level and effectively we try and make ourselves redundant which sounds a bit of an odd thing to say but you know at the first team when you're playing every three and a half four days you need to be looking after your body and it doesn't matter what someone's telling you to do you need to make the right choices you know you need to make sure you're eating enough or eating the right products and foods and drinking and sleeping etc so we are just trying to produce this this new generation of football players and I think from my time at Coventry at the first team, 10 years plus ago, you know, there was definitely a different different breed of footballer. Um, there was definitely a different breed in the championship that, at that time to what there would be, obviously, in the English or the Scottish Premier League. But even, you know, at lower leagues, it's this continual um, progression of, of attitude, really. And, and um, yeah, I, mean, I think it's very much down to the efforts that people are putting into academy football. I think gone are the days where the there's always footballers are a bit thick they don't know much but see now as you say these guys are athletes they could tell you what they need to be and they could tell you how much sleep they need to get they can tell you what exercises they need to do what stretching they need to do 10 maybe 20 years ago that wouldn't happen so these guys are they're well educated now I don't think you can say footballers are thick anymore or anything like that because these guys know all that and then they can go out onto a pitch in front of thousands and thousands of people and however many watching at home perform and perform a tactical knowledge as well it's incredible how much these young boys can take on now isn't it it is you know you, you've hit the nail on the head there i think that they are you know the information that they have is you know is simple box under information it's, it's to some degree quite in depth and scientific and I guess sometimes, even if they are displaying the habits that they're displaying without necessarily knowing the, the ins and outs of it, but knowing that if they don't do it, they'll be sore. Or if they don't do it, they're not going to be able to perform on Tuesday and then again on Saturday and then again on Wednesday and then again on Sunday. 
Um, so it's getting them used to, you know, getting them to buy into that process for sure and, and allowing them to perform, isn't it, at the highest level. You encourage the young boys to do other sports, don't you? What's the thinking behind that? So if you think of what your body can do as, I don't know, it's like a scale, for example. So, you know, if you look at all the different types of sports, if you think of gymnastics, badminton, tennis, other team-based sports, rugby, football, hockey, you know, the body can do a wide variety of things. You know, it's, it's a fantastic thing, really, our bodies. They can adapt to anything. Now, if you just provide your body with the same stimulus, the same narrow stimulus, the ability of your body to do other movements is going to be diminished. Um, so in that regard, as a growing person, as a maturing person, a young you know, teenager, young adult, we need to be able to keep that scale, that, that continuum as wide as possible, as broad as possible, to be able to learn the skills that you need to, to perform as a footballer. So if you look at, you know, it was 20 years ago, footballers from the UK, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland used to get called wooden all the time. You could spot a, you know, a UK footballer off a mile away. You put five home nation footballers up against five South American footballers and you could spot the difference straight away, couldn't you? You know, you've only got to look at Maradona from 1986, the way in which he could move, look at Messi, the way in which they can move. Neymar, you know, there's lots of examples really, but, we need to provide this this stimulus for players to have or be able to move in different ways. And you can think of it as a bit like tools in a toolbox, if you want to think of it like that. So by providing them with different sports and multi-sports approach, you're allowing them to have different tools at their disposal effectively. And then they can use those tools whenever they need to. Um, some people do call it things like movement puzzles, which is a little bit cringe I think and cliche to some degree but it's a good way of explaining it everything's a bit of a puzzle and you you know your body's just got to be able to work it out effectively so yeah we, we definitely do promote players to to try and um, spend time playing different sports for sure um, there's there's some school of, um, of thought that specialization and early specialization can help now that's probably more beneficial for things like um, being a musician, for example, or a chess player. For something that's more movement orientated, it's better that you're diverse and you you know you, you sample lots of other sports. And as kids, I think, you know, we probably did that a lot more than probably what kids do now effectively, you know. Um, we you know I personally myself I played football, I played rugby, I played tennis, um, I swam, you know, this is all you know in one week. That was just a typical week. Um, and I think the danger of trying to become an elite footballer too early is you miss out on this vital development. And what happens is if your body can only move in a certain way, and it might be good in that certain way, but if it can only move in a certain way, football will probably find a way of breaking you down and injuring you because you can't, there's going to be some scenario in the game which your body therefore can't do, really, because you know, the, the game is or can be quite diverse and it's becoming very intense and performing multiple times a week, your body's not going to be able to, to demand that really. Um, so to be able to, to manipulate and control the ball in, in different demands, you have to be able to manipulate and control your body. And they, they definitely go hand in hand. And if you don't have that basic foundation, your ability to really specialise as you become older in, in a specific position is going to, going to be diminished for sure. 
um, your ability to pick up skills and, and learn new skills um, that would be highly specific to your position. Well, you know, you, your body's just not going to be able to do it. You know, your body's like a sponge, effectively. So without having that wide base, it becomes less of a sponge. You can't soak up new information, new skills. So it is quite difficult. It's a bit of a trade-off for sure with football because you know football does start early. So there's if you I don't know if you've seen Bayern Munich actually they've actually stopped signing players before the age of I think it's eleven or twelve, uh, which is interesting. That's something that they believe in. Now they are lucky because they're the biggest club in their area. So you can imagine if one of the teams in Glasgow decided to do that, that yeah, the other team in Glasgow would obviously pick up a lot of the younger talent. So it's something that we certainly wouldn't be able to do here, for example. Um, but we've got to try and promote that as much as possible. So if we, you know, if players can't go out and do it for whatever reason, we try and bring that to the sessions. So, you know, if we can, if we at St. Indians, for example, at the school that we have in Kirk and Tillich along with the club, uh, any sessions that we can do there with certain age groups, we'll look to do basketball or badminton or general athletics, um, gymnastics, tug of war. We'll do fun stuff. We keep it as much, you know, as much fun as possible. Um, but that, yeah, that's a, bit of a snapshot into some of the research and ideas behind the multi-sports approach, really. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You said something else at the convention where you said you dispelled a couple of myths about the 10,000 hours for... As you said about musicians, maybe that works out. It doesn't quite work on the same level for sports and football. But you also said that strength training for young young players that shouldn't be done until they're a certain age, maybe over teenagers and that. But you said that's a lot of nonsense. So, how how early do you start strength training with these players, and 
what would be involved in that strength training? So we see our strength training as a bit of a, you can look at it as a bit of like a roadmap, really. And where you start that is about the age of 13. Now, at the age of 13, it's very much body weight control. And it's, it's about them learning the movements that they'll be required to do in the gym at a little bit of a later age. So it's getting them used to being in that gym environment because it requires them to be a little bit more professional because, um, you know, there's, there's obviously weights around and bits and pieces. So they can learn and understand that and they can learn and understand the movements and become competent and proficient. And once they're in a position, which doesn't necessarily take too long, you know, we've got a specific program in place that might take maybe six months, we can then start adding a little bit of weight to that and resistance to that. So resistance training doesn't stunt your growth. There's no evidence at all of any negative um, parameters around strength training of any age. And that includes children. And for this you know, purpose, children is, is pre-adolescent. So we're talking children, we're talking 9, 10, 11. So there's no evidence to suggest that even if strength training is done properly with children, there's no issue at all. We don't start that young because it's, it's, we don't quite have the time. It's not quite appropriate. But we start with 13-year-olds. With um, and we're all trained, um, certified, um, accredited strength and conditioning coaches. So, we, you know, it's a very safe environment. And it's a very slow and progressive environment. You know, it's nothing. Everybody works in what we call the technical framework. So if you're not technically moving correctly, you stop and we coach you and then you do it again properly and then we'll build you up from there. So it is a very slow and progressive thing, but starting at that sort of under 14 age group, so 13 years of age, you know, you could have three, so you have your under 14s year, under 15s year, under 16s year, you could have three and a half years by the time you become under 18s, which is full-time football. Um, your body's going through a natural phase where it's releasing hormones that's going to help put on a little bit of muscle mass, for example. So we're just tapping into that very, very natural process um, and, and trying to build strength that way, which is massively important for, for players that, you know, they are training and they're training to a, a pretty intense level, um, you know, which is required to become an elite footballer. So we've got to try and get their bodies in the best possible position that prevents them from breaking down. So there's absolutely no um, doubt in my mind that you know that it's, it's the right thing to do. It's scientifically backed up. Uh, I've been working in football for several years and I've never had any issues whatsoever with, with strength training. If anything, I've seen a lot of issues in players that haven't been strong enough. And, and even though your skeletal system is developing still, it's still very, very safe. When you go out and run and sprint, you're probably exerting ground reaction forces of over 10 times your body weight. So if you weighed 50 kilos as a 13, 14-year-old, that's 400 kilogra- uh, sorry, 500 kilograms worth of force putting through your body. Well, you're never going to lift 500 kilos in the gym. Mm-hmm. So when you actually look at it in that sense, it's actually very, very safe. And actually the forces that go through your body through sprinting, landing, jumping, they are can be quite demanding on your skeletal system. And muscle mass actually acts as a bit of a, a force absorption, like a shock absorption structure. So having a little bit more muscle mass around sensitive areas of your body, like your lower back, for example, around your pelvis and hip area, is actually extremely beneficial for footballers and, and growing athletes. I'm not saying we're going to turn players into Akin Fenway and, and huge players with you know, lots and lots of muscle mass. I'm talking you know, a few kilograms and over a slow period of time. 
um, just to help their bodies develop naturally. So it's a really, really important process, um, strength development. And, and strength underpins so many things. It underpins your, your ability to move efficiently. It underpins your ability to sprint and change direction effectively. So it's a really important process that we start early to, to move incrementally and progressively as opposed to starting later and trying to go too fast. That's that's another issue that we need to be aware of. Um, the other thing you mentioned there about 10,000 hours, yeah, that's... So that was a, that was something that was brought up by somebody called Ericsson, who who looked into uh, violin, violin, sorry, violinists and chess players, and they find that the more that you practice, the better you became, which is you know makes a lot of sense. That, however, there's it was probably taken out of context and applied to situations and environments that aren't the same, and football's definitely one. And Ericsson has since come out and said, people, you know have taken this 10,000 hours rule, which was only really quite a loose rule, and it's a very approximate figure, and they've they've extrapolated it and applied it to situations that aren't appropriate. And, you know, sport is, and certain sports like football, skill-based sports are definitely, are definitely one. There was a study that came out in, in, in Germany, it was about the um, 2006, yeah, Germany won, I'm pretty sure, was it 2006 or 2010? I can't remember, whatever year... Germany won the World Cup. They did a study of how many hours they they worked out how many hours that German World Cup winning team did individually, and on average it was somewhere around four to six thousand hours. So it's you know there's and there's multiple examples of that in different sports and in other areas and other other studies in football. So you know it's quite apparent that you don't actually have to spend lots of specialised training to become an elite football player and this I guess is where this multi-sports approach comes in as well we need to provide you with these building blocks and foundations that you require so you can specialise later on so once you become an under 18s player and this is now your full-time job yes now we specialise and fully specialise and that's when we can really start to home in on the specific skills that you're going to require as a footballer but it needs to be thought of in a balanced approach always remember when Didi Ariat was playing for Celtic, the commentator would say, I remember a commentator saying you can't teach pace, but see with strength and condition, can you build up strength in the legs to make players faster and be able to sprint further and just make those marginal gains? I know you'll not be able to make somebody who's not the quickest Usain Bolt, but you will be able to build them up to sprint quicker, is that right? Yes, no, definitely. Um, Anybody can, can get quicker. You know, it's probably dependent on how quick you already are, and and what you know what your genetics are effectively. But we can certainly make players faster. When, and as you rightly said, we know we're not going to start turning players into Linford Christie and and you're saying Bolt. But we can certainly put on a few. You know, we can improve you by a, a certain amount of percent for sure. And and strength training alone has suggested that I can improve people up to about three percent. Which, if you ran twenty meters in three seconds, that could take you down to sub 2.9 which is a you know a decent improvement really and that's just strength training alone so on top of that we do a lot of strength uh, sorry a lot of sprint development work so sprinting is and sprinting fast is not actually natural to some people so it's learning how then to, to move in a very efficient manner so we do spend a lot of time on that um what's also important to understand is like we said with the um, characteristics of champions league players and being able to produce repeated high intensity efforts it's obviously not just about sprinting once, is it? It's about sprinting a number of times in 90 minutes. And we can 
we can probably affect that more and your repeated sprintability than your ability to, to sprint one-off effort. Um, so we can we can certainly help in that area as well. Um, but no, it's, it is a, a really interesting area. Um, it takes a lot of detail and, and hard work on the player's behalf, but it's something that's definitely possible for sure. The best example I can think of this is Kieran Tierney, but also when Gareth Bale signed for Real Madrid, I seen a photo of him the day he signed to a year later, and the change in his body is incredible. And Kieran Tierney as well, when he first came into the team, I remember when he'd come over at the sideline, he'd have a, a juice with him and the, the gel pack with him because he struggled to get through the full 90 minutes. Now, from Kieran Tierney to go from that to where he got to maybe a season later or a season and a half later, the change in the guy's body was incredible. How do you get guys like that who are playing two games a week, doing all this training, where do you fit in the strength training to build them up like that? It can be quite difficult. So when you're when you're playing multiple times a week, it's difficult to do a, just a normal strength session. You know, anybody that's listened to this that goes to the gym or goes for a run and is sore a day afterwards will understand, you know, that you're going to be getting a little bit tight and, and, and sore after doing some strength development work. And you can't really have that as a, as a first-team professional. You know, you can't be going into the derby at the weekend being a little bit stiff and sore because we're trying to make you a slightly better athlete. You have to be as fresh as possible to perform. So in terms of first-team, what they call micro-dosing, so they'll do a little bit of it every single day or most days and just do a little bit. But over time then, the accumulated benefits uh, will, will build up and, and obviously will help. Excuse me. But it's about putting them in a position physically where um, they can allow that natural excuse me, development of, um, of their bodies just becoming accustomed to that type of intensity of first-team football. So... I know we've spoken a lot about building blocks and foundations, but it is so, so important. Now, someone like KT, for example, he's probably genetically very, very good, isn't he? Um, mm. So his body's developed that naturally. You just had to provide the stimulus that's first-team football, you know, the Scottish Premier League football, Champions League-level football, and his body's developed it. So some people obviously go through that more than others. Gareth Bale is another one, for example. Um, he's quite genetic, you know, he's genetically very, very good, isn't he? Um, there's some great pitches out of when he was at Spurs playing left back, and uh, some some pitches of him at Real Madrid with a with a vest on training, and you can see that the difference in his you know physique is frightening, isn't it? Um, it takes time, Martin. You know, it, it does take time, and and it's difficult. Like with Katie, I know you see you've seen a difference in, in 12 months, but with a lot of players, it will just take time. That's another reason why we start early. You know. It's, there's not many overnight success stories, regardless of your footballing ability. You know, we're talking about your physique. It does it does take a little while. So it's about putting their body in a position that can hack those demands effectively. But that's probably the main technique of the first team is doing a little bit, a little you know more often than doing one big bite maybe once or twice a week. Well, what sort of, would it be more compound exercises like squats and deadlifts that hit more body parts than just, or would it be? specifics like trying to hit one muscle group at a time or what what, what difference is it yeah so unlike maybe normal um, physique training or you know people that go to the gym they might do right I'm going to go and work on my you know biceps today and my chest and then I'm going to go work on my hamstrings and my groins 
instead of training specific muscles, we try and train movements more because it's movements that we're preparing the players for. Now, don't get me wrong, there's certainly times that we will target individual muscle groups. The hamstrings, for example, is a really, really important one. You know, it's, it is the most common uh, muscle injury in, in elite football. So it's, it's an area that we will specifically uh, specifically look at. But no, you're right, compound lifts are things that we do do these movements. We try and train more on one leg than we do on two because effectively, obviously, football is played on one leg. If you're running and sprinting, there's only one leg that's touching the floor at all times. If you're, you know, with the ball, you're obviously going to be one foot on the ball, one foot on the floor. So it's you're never really doing anything with, with two legs. Um, the only stuff that we do, sort of what we call bilaterally with two legs, is probably earlier on in their sort of strength training, so maybe when they were younger. But we try and go more sort of single-leg approach as much as we possibly can. So we'll be doing things like split squats, um, we do a lot of lunge work. We do uh, these exercises called Nordics, which um, look quite funny, but um, they're, they're specifically trained for your for your hamstrings. We do some specific groin activation work and, and contraction work. We, we also differ the type of contraction that your muscle performs. There's obviously three types. There's concentric, when your muscle gets shorter. There's isometric, where your muscle tenses but doesn't change in length. And there's eccentric when you contract, but your muscle actually gets longer. So we, we will do different types of contractions on different days. The eccentric contractions where your muscles get a little bit longer, that's the ones that you really get sore off more often. But they're actually really important for your hamstrings because they lengthen a lot when you sprint. And that's why they get injured. So we try and pick a specific day far enough away from the game. So if you, if you played on a Saturday, for example, you might do that on a Tuesday or on a Wednesday. And you'd, you'd look to do that exercise as far away as the game as possible. But a lot of the isometric work, you can produce a lot of force, but you don't get any soreness. So that's another area in which um, the guys at the first team try and develop a lot of strength as well. When you've got the academy boys, how much like testing and profile are you doing on them? And how, Because it, it must be hard because, as you've been talking about, they grow at different ages, they, grow, they have different growth spots. How... Cause, because you could maybe if a lot of players get released, they always hear that they were too small. But then uh, Andy Robertson's a perfect example, but he comes back later on and he's a great player. So how, how do you keep all that information and try and differentiate for each player? Because they go through different, with, born at different times and they're playing against pe- people the same age as them. But if somebody's born in January and then they're playing against somebody who's November, that's that's a long time at that age. No, definitely. Great question. We we look to do what we call player profiles, where we have a, it's almost like a folder, electronic folder that's on each player. And on that, there'll be lots of numbers. The numbers are for us as staff, so we'll understand you as an athlete, Martin. So we'll understand where you are at your current age group, where you, where you are, are you average, above average, below average? And we effectively colour code it, and it will be a simple traffic light system. So when we would sit down with you, for example, we'd, we'd just say, you know, what colours do you see? And you'd report back straight away and just say, well, I see more greens than anything else. Well, that's that's a good, that's a positive sign. That shows that for your age group, for where you are, you know, you're above average. Or likewise, if you're saying you can see more ambers and reds, okay, great, well, that's the areas that we need to work in. And then we have, we have these individual meetings with players. So they, they're then very much part of the process. Obviously, the older they get, the more they're involved, the more important these meetings are when you're full-time. Um, because it's really important that they buy into the work that we do. 
because sometimes some of the exercises, like we're talking about this morning exercise, doesn't look like anything that you do in a football game, but the benefits it can have for your hamstrings, which you definitely use during football, is huge. So they need to understand the reasons why we do these things. So we, we compare players uh, to their own chronological age group. So we'll compare under-18s to under-18s, reserve players against reserve players, under-16s against under-16s, etc. We'll also work out what they're like, almost a bit like a boxer, pound for pound. So we divide it by their body weight. People that weigh more are typically stronger by about 60%. So it's it's important that we understand that. And we've got an equation, like it's like a, a weighted factored equation. So if we've got two players, for example, one weighs 60 kilos, one weighs 80 kilos, the one that weighs 80 kilos can produce more force. However, when divided by their body weight, the one that's 60 kilos actually might be pound for pound stronger. So it's important to understand that as well. We call that allometric scaling. So we, we have a process for that. With the younger ones or the ones between the sort of 14s to 16s age bracket, we look at their chronological comparisons, but we also, what we look at their biological comparisons. So you could be a 15-year-old in a 18-year-old's body, or you could be a 15-year-old in a 13-year-old body. So just because you're the same age, you might be born at the same time, you know, you and your friends in the same age group could look completely different. And, and we know that, don't we? We know that from our time at, at school and, and, you know, our um, friends and family and, and, and whatever. There's always someone that's grown really quickly and someone that grows a lot, lot later on. So it's really important that we have an in-depth understanding of that. So we do have a rough indication of, of your estimated adult height. It's a little bit rough and ready. But what we do is we work out at what percentage you currently are to what we, we think you're going to be. Obviously, we work in centimetres. It's a lot easier doing it that way. So let's say, for example, someone's going to be 183 centimetres, which is around about six foot. And then we see where they are now currently at 155 centimetres, what percentage is of, that, of their estimated adult height. People will go through their growth spurt, typically in and around 91 to 93% of their estimated adult height. This is called their peak height velocity is a scientific term but it's basically just a growth spurt so whilst going through that you're more at risk of injury your body's going through massive um, developments in terms of bone lengths so your bones will grow quicker than your muscles so what happens is your muscles become quite tight you become not very flexible and mobile Um, you can become very uncoordinated you're obviously growing quite quickly and your your eyesight and your brain's now at a different level to what it was before and it's trying to work that out. So there's lots of things going on here. Uh, hormonally, you know, we all know what teenagers can be like to work with. Um, so there's lots of things going on that's really, really important. So we try to make, we try and compare apples and apples and pairs to pairs, you know, it's, it's really important that we do that. To, to try and avoid anything that we can, you know, it's always... Said, you know, Alex Ferguson always came out and said that he thought Paul Scholes was going to be too small. Messi always thought it was going to be too small. No, Messi ended up having some uh, steroid injections in it to help him grow because he was medically very, very small. But it is a common one. You hear it all the time. I think he's going to be too small. So it's kind of important that we have a bit of an idea of where they are, or how much how much have they left to grow, even though it's very, very rough. Um, we can kind of get a bit of an idea. We'll never select people or deselect people based on height, but we can just help to factor that into any programming. That's kind of how we use it. Um, so, yeah, lots of information there. <laughs> I've just thrown at you, Martin. But that's kind of, it just gives a quick 
snapshot of the, the profiling system that we go to and go through. But effectively, we just try and work on traffic lights with the players so they can get an idea. And we plug it with lots of testing. We test them three times a year with all their sprints, jumps, change of direction, aerobic tests, etc. We know how far they run in games. Um, we can help them with that. We can compare them to, you know, if you're you're a centre midfielder, this is what you do, this is what Scott Bryan does, this is what someone does in the reserves, this is what someone does in the under-18s, this is probably where your progression should lie, this is probably where we think you need to develop. And we just put plans in place, that's all we do, and then we get the players to agree with that, they have a goal, we've got a goal, we work towards it, we have this shared, yeah, this shared insight, this shared vulnerability, you know, if we succeed, we both succeed, if we don't, we both fail, and you know, it's, it's, it's this process that we go through. You've spoke about the academy and this culture you're doing, as you just said there, if you fail, I fail, and that's a good way to do it because you're all in this together. So see when you're telling these players you're doing all the testing, you're giving them everything to do, you're giving them all the education you can, they're training in the best facilities they can in Scotland, they're getting the best of everything, basically. How do you keep up the hunger and desire for a player to keep going, to push on, to be the best they can be because you spoke about the book at the coaches convention there's no hunger in paradise how do you get players to push themselves as far as they can go it's a really interesting aspect I think motivation and commitment Um, I think everyone's committed all the players I work with are committed to being a footballer if they they weren't they wouldn't be there because you know it does come with travel it comes with later nights it comes with physical training it's hard work mentally it's tough you know selection not getting selected getting substituted not winning you know it's 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 tough on a teenager so if you if they didn't want to be there they wouldn't be there so there, you can take that as a granted commitment is fixed you know it's it's there it's always there the difference between commitment and motivation is motivation varies you know, we, we all feel the same. So, you know, I'm getting married in September, Martin. So I'm thinking, right, I need to, you know, lose a few pounds before the wedding day. It's a lot easier. Yeah, if it's you might sunny. a bit longer than you think. <laughs> yeah, very true. Very true. But it's a lot easier when it's sunny outside, you know, yeah. I suppose. It's, so motivation goes up and down with mood. It goes up and down with the weather. It goes up and down with whatever your personal life is, is going on outside the club. So we've got to try and keep players motivated by getting them to tap into this commitment because the commitment's already there, they're committed. So we're trying to get them to sort of connect these dots together effectively. Now, drive is something that I'm quite interested in. Why are some people more driven than others? And there's a really interesting book called Drive, actually, by an author called Daniel Pink. It's an excellent book. And he's got three main things. It's autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And it's these three things that really come together to, to, to make somebody driven so if we break that down mastery it's, it's obviously the, the, the ability to achieve something so a lot of our programs we set as we've already said like small targets and small goals for people to to reach these milestones to feel like they're improving we have sort of progressions and, and regressions. so right you've done this exercise that's perfect you're doing it really well we're going to give you a slightly harder exercise to do it that's an ongoing process in terms of purpose Purpose is a really important one. And for me, it's it, they need to understand why we're doing what we're doing. They don't need to understand what we're doing because no one's really bothered with the what. Everyone's bothered with the why. 
the why is the really important thing. Why is this going to help me? Why am I doing this? So we need to get them to be able to understand on whatever level it needs to be why they're doing this effectively. Of course, we all know it's the, it's to help them to get to become an elite footballer, but you sometimes need to break it down into a little bit more detail than that and make it maybe a little bit more obvious. Um, so that's that one. Autonomy is obviously the ability to, to have control of something and increasing someone's autonomy um, increases engagement. So when we're having these meetings with players, when we're sitting down and going through their, their physical profile, we'll get them to chip in. You know, what exercises do you like? What exercises don't you like? What do you think that you need to help you as an athlete? You know, what's going to stop you physically from getting into the first team? You, you know, you tell us. You play the games, your body. You tell us. What do you think? You can see the data. You tell us. What do you think? And they might turn around and say, it's, I don't know, it's my agility, it's my change of direction. I can't jump enough or whatever it needs to be. Okay, great. How are we going to work on that? And like you rightly said, you know, players aren't thick. You know, if they've been in this program for a long period of time, they know what strength training they need to do. They know what training they need to do, sort of full stop, really. So they'll quite quickly give you some excellent answers on what they need to do. But now they feel like they've added to their program. You know, they need to understand that it's their program. We need to have this shared ownership. You know, it's, it's not a school environment and we need to get as far away from that feeling as possible. And it's more difficult when you're dealing with players who are, who are still at school because they will see me as a teacher. They'll see, because that's what they know, isn't it? They go home, mum and dad tell them to tidy their room and put your school bag away, do your homework and brush your teeth. They go to school and stop rocking back on your chair, stop talking, work harder, don't run the corridor. And they expect that same environment at the football club. And we can't provide it. It doesn't work that way. You know, they've got to come to the party. They've got to produce something. They've got to, as we've said, have this shared ownership. You know, if it was the other way around, if it was like school, it'd be that typical saying, you know, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And that's effectively what the players need to do. They they need to do the hard work. You know, nine, on the eye, on you know, if I'm looking at players, if they're working at 90, 95%, that probably looks the same to me as 100%. But they will know that they're not quite applying themselves as much as they possibly can so what you know even though all these programs that we're doing all the testing that we're doing all the education that we're doing it's always always down to them as and it's all to do with these interactions that we have and relationships that we have with the players so it's really important mind that they they understand that so this autonomy part is really really important so if anyone wants to read a bit more about that that was drive by daniel pink and i definitely recommend it Definitely, people have got a bit more time on their hands at the moment uh, through lockdown, but I'd, I'd recommend that book. It is really good. And as you rightly said, there is no hunger in paradise. So the better the facilities get, the better the equipment gets, the more staff that we have, the more they feel, they may feel that they've they've achieved something. And don't get me wrong, they should certainly be proud they're in Celtic, Celtics Academy. You know, it's a, it's a fantastic achievement and not everybody's ever is going to uh, is be able to say that they can do that. But obviously they haven't achieved anything yet in terms of the football career you know I'm careful how I'm phrasing that of course they've achieved something but in terms of what they all want as a football career they haven't really achieved anything yet so we need to try and get them to understand that and present little mini challenges with them and support them through it um, and it's a difficult one it's it's not something that you can touch it's not tangible you know environment's feeling isn't it it's all to do with how, how things feel and the relationships between people and it's it's got to be positive but it's got to be challenging and it's a real fine line it's a difficult one to really try and master 
and it's something that I've been really keen on but the staff here that are really you know tuned into that and it's not about the best coaches and the best facilities or the best players will make elite footballers because if it was that simple everybody would be doing it everybody would be producing lots of players wouldn't they but it's, it's certainly not and we all know lots of players that we thought were going to come through they're talented footballers that didn't make it so there's got to be lots of reasons why and I think it's within this area in this in this culture that's what I think putting all of that together and everything you teach the players obviously it's not ideal circumstances now but you, you've given all these players so much now you're going to see the benefits of it because as you say we are in lockdown these players have to be responsible for themselves now because they don't go into training every day they have to go and work themselves and you'll obviously give them stuff to do but how's how's things changed in the last couple of months going into lockdown for these players and yourself yeah so obviously we stopped training in march and you know that's squad training and we haven't been in any facility to, to train or anything so anything that you know they, they haven't even been able to go to a gym normally during this period off season we provide them with a program and we expect them to be going to a gym or having some something maybe at home that they could use to, to perform these exercises that we that we, we need them to do but obviously at the start it was just at home programs wasn't it and that was right the way from our foundation phases right the way up to our reserves we needed to provide programs that's going to keep them mentally stimulated physically fit mentally you know well-being wise ticks that box as well so we we basically provided different programs with different age groups obviously we tried to keep it a lot of fun with the younger ones we did lots of different stuff skipping and um hula hoops and bits and pieces and that was very much in line with the, the stuff that willie McNabb had given the younger academy technical work and keep you up challenges and bits and pieces so that was like really fun with the sort of middle age group, what we call the intermediate academy, that's our sort of 13s to 16s. It was a little bit more professional, if you want to call it that. So it was a bit more structured. Um, they had some more structured running drills. And obviously then the professional development phase, our 18s reserves was very, very structured. And, and as you can imagine, professional. But they had different days, different, th- different things to do on different days, but effectively some sort of running four or five days a week with then different strength work as well. But, you, you know, you're obviously within certain parameters. Some people don't have pitches. Some people have treadmills at home. Some people don't. Some people have bikes at home. Some people don't. Some people have weights. Some people don't. So it's, it's trying to provide a program that one changes because you couldn't have the same program for this three months. I think you'd be going mad, wouldn't you, if you had the same program. So we've had to provide different programs, but just trying to accommodate for different people. But it's been a really good insight, actually, Martin, to, to what players are like. You know, it's, it's a really good insight to what they're, elite mindsets and elite habits alike because some have been as you can imagine excellent and others probably a little bit less so um and we've done we've done some really interesting and fun things we'll get lads to post their breakfast for example and there must be some sort of Weetabix sponsorship going and knocking about in the academy because if i see another couple of Weetabix oh wow um but we've done some we've done some cool stuff we've done some cookery classes on on zoom classes uh, on zoom sessions sorry which have been great we've done uh, what have we done we've done wraps and fajitas we've done spaghetti bolognese we've done uh, chicken goujons um, we did like a Nando's dish it's been great the lads have really enjoyed it um, and you know it's given them some basic skills we're just I guess trying to make the, the best out of this situation you know the lads are desperate to come back they're continually asking when can we when are we going to come back and train and, and everything because it is quite tedious one being on your own anyway that they're social animals aren't they they're at school every day and 
when they finish school, they go into full-time football. They're around their pals all the time. So being on their own is difficult. But whilst at home, we try and get them to do, record any running that they do on, on running apps like Strava or Nike or Polar or whatever. And we can get an idea of what they're up to. But we're trying to give them a stimulus to keep them going. There's some sprint work in there, some change of direction work in there, a lot of aerobic work. But a lot of our players will be maybe doing 30 kilometres a week of football work, including games. And even if you want to do a lot of linear-based running, you're not, you, know, you, you might only be doing 15, 20K. So they've got quite a, a lowered stimulus, really, but we're just trying to give them enough. So when we go back in, we can try and hit the ground running. So you mentioned Weetabix there, but recently Ryan Christie took over the Celtic Instagram and he had Frosties for his breakfast. You won't be recommending that to the young boys? Though. No, not Frosties. No, we, we try and keep them away if we can from those types of cereals. Obviously, they're, they're just full of sugar, aren't they? But it's difficult. Kids are kids. We all have fond memories of, of eating cereal as kids. We're just trying to, trying to um, get them, as we said, educated. It's funny, isn't it? I think as... as as adults, I think we hit a stage, don't we, where we start just eating more things in a variety of foods. Um, so we're, we're just trying to bring that earlier as much as we possibly can because of obviously the benefits of nutrition. So we'll try and uh, the food that we, in the foods that we have at, at the club, we'll, we'll try and, um, you know, we might not have Weetabix, for example, for a week and they've got to try and eat something else. We'll, you know, we'll try and get them to try scrambled egg, poached egg, different types of cereals, whatever it is, we, we'll try and increase that as much as possible. But um, it's, some, it's funny, some of the stories you hear on, on footballers and cereals. And I know Shane Long, apparently his pre-match always used to be Cocoa Pops. So it's, it's funny what you, what you do here. I suppose it's a sort of mental thing as well. If you play well and you have Cocoa Pops or Sugar Puffs, maybe if players are creatures of habits and they think, well, if I keep doing that, I, I should play well every time. Yeah, no, exactly. And, I think when you get to a level where you're performing week in, week out at that elite bracket, you know, if someone tells me they this is the this is the type of thing that they do, who am I tell them to, to sort of stop it? Um, you know, as long as they're performing and and if that's only one meal out of all the meals that you can have in a week, well then sort of so be it. Do you have any idea when the academy will be back training and all that? At the moment obviously everything and everyone's geared up for trying to get the first team back in, which will obviously be sooner rather than later. Um, so once that's up and running you know we'll have a good idea of what training can look like the rest of the club is probably going to be bound by the restrictions placed on by Nicholas Sturgeon and, and the wider government really so obviously it comes at a cost at the moment as a big cost to the Premier League I think it, the Premier League to come back and test everybody twice a week and all the PPE that they required and everything else it was costing them £4 million um, so it's a massive massive cost um, so we'll we'll obviously start our academy up a lot this or later and, and not to a point where there's, it's not going to require a cost, obviously. So we're probably looking maybe the reserves sometime in, in July, uh, middle mid to late July, and then the uh, the under 18s and the rest of the academy will, will most likely be um, a few weeks later, probably August. Obviously, the schools go back in on the 11th, don't they? So I think we're using that as a good. Uh, a good start date for the rest of the academy really just we'll have a better idea at that point on on what we can and can't do and what schools are going to look like and how that's probably going to impact in training obviously we have a uh, an affiliation with St Ninians at Kirk and Tillich and, and some teams train there so we'll have to understand 
how that will look like and you know what Barrowfield will look like and how we can train there and stuff so it's it's all a little bit up in the air at the moment but we're looking at probably August for the majority of teams The whole landscape of football is going to change after this and maybe teams will be looking to their academy or do you think that will be the case that they'll try and bring through players themselves now rather than going out and Scottish teams sort of tend to be very short term I think and they look at it like give a player a one year contract then the next year we'll sign another journeyman Scottish player whereas I think if they went and invested in the academy I know it's a lot of money but if you sell one player from your academy that could fund you for years but Scottish football teams don't seem to do that but Celtic kind of bring through one player a season in the academy do you think they'll try and ramp that up now that they're spending so much money on it and they've got yourself in they've got the whole team do you think over years we'll maybe see two or three coming through each season hopefully yeah you know I'm a big advocate of academy football obviously I work in it um, but you you know you've only got to look at Katie and, and the value that he brought to the club I'm sure we'd have all preferred him to, to sort of stay because he was such a talented footballer um, but even if players do leave you know the financial implications of that are fantastic uh, and, and like you said can can fund the club for a long period of time and the academy can hopefully come to a point where it's almost self-sufficient and is almost its own entity and separate body to the club in some or to the first team in some degree so you know we're not dependent maybe on on getting into the Champions League or how well we do in Europa for example we are we're producing our own talent and, you know, they might not be good enough for Celtic, but they've got a sell-on value or they are good enough for Celtic and they improve the standard of the squad. I think having academy-based footballers outside of the financial implications is also, you know, massive. It's huge. You know, they're part of the club. We've got, you know, Callum McGregor's been part of the club for, for a long, long time. You know, he, he's, he knows the tradition. He gets it. He understands the fans. He understands the place. He understands Celtic Park, Lennox Town. He's great to have in and around the dressing room, the knowledge that he can impart on people coming in. We've had Scott Brown and, and Callum and, um, on Zoom calls actually with the under-18s just to try and help give them advice and get them to understand what it means to be part of this club and, and what it takes to, to get to the top because it's certainly not easy. Um, so I think, you know, there's hopefully Scott, more Scottish teams do sort of take what's, you know, the lead that Celtic have been doing and, and hopefully is a small cog that we are as a sports science department and a big machine that, that is Celtic. If we can help to, to try and produce more players for the first team, well, then that'll be a huge success story for, for everybody involved. And it's certainly something that we're, that we're aiming to do. So if we can help, like you say, push on from maybe one player making a debut to two players or pushing more players into the first team squad, that's great, isn't it? It's great for the club. It's great for the boys and it's great for us. So hopefully we, hopefully we can have that impact. Last question then, obviously what you were saying about Cal McGregor and Scott Brown talking to these players, how much does Neil Lennon and the first team staff and first team players, do you try and bring them down to try and speak to the boys and give them that lift to say, well, this could be you at some point? Or does Neil Lennon come down or Brendan Rogers when he was here and try and give these boys a lift? Because that would be the dream at that age, seeing guys like that coming in. Oh, I couldn't agree more and I couldn't speak highly enough of our first team staff you know from the manager John Kennedy's obviously you know he's he's Celtic through and through he's he's come through the academy he's played for the first team he's managed the reserves you know the manager he's also been the, the uh, reserve team manager as well before he became the first team manager the first time round 
Um, so, you know, it's really important for them to sort of be involved and they are. They'll they'll come and watch reserve games. They'll come and watch under-18s games. Um, it helps, obviously, that we play games at Lennox time and they, they can come and, and be involved in that, obviously, and, and watch. But, they you know, they all sort of share an office. They, they're all in and around each other. So we've obviously got John Kennedy and then um, Steve McManus and, and Tommy McIntyre with the reserves and... and and Mick obviously being a being a player here, being captain here, gets on really well with Kendo, and they know each other. They've known each other for a long, long period of time. So it's fantastic that they, there's there's a great link there as well, both personally and professionally. Um, but no, we we do try and get the whenever we can. Obviously, that's first team results are the first, you know, the most important thing. Obviously, and wherever we can get staff to speak to to players, we do, and they will. You know, they'll they'll see lads walking down the corridor, and they'll chat to them, they'll speak to them. Is this very much this sort of family orientated club that we spoke about right at the beginning, which we're really, really fortunate to have? Um, and you're right; it does mean it means so much, doesn't it? As you can imagine yourself if you put yourself in their shoes as a <clears throat> under 18s player, a reserve team player, or even or even younger. You know, we've got under 15s, under 16s that train at Lennox Town of an evening, and you know the first team staff are still around to come four or five o'clock. And they get to see them and speak to them and chat to them and, and and speak to the coaches as well. So, you know, that we're really lucky there that we've got that shared facility and, and the first team staff are so welcoming to the academy staff and so inquisitive with the players. And they provide that fantastic support. And, and the players here know that there's a pathway, which is hugely important, hugely important. There's lots of clubs, especially in England, that the pathway is virtually non-existent. You know, I'm sure we can all think of a few examples, but we're really lucky here that we know that the pathway is open and and everybody wants to see Celtic Academy players in the Celtic first team. Yeah, there's nothing better than seeing one of your own in the pitch, is there? So it's always always better, and especially now there's there's so many of them. At one point in the last few seasons, there's been five or six on the pitch at the one time. And I just think the fans can... They can take to them more than they could take to other players, can't they? Yeah, definitely. You know, you get the nail on the head there. They're one of our own, aren't they? And that's how the chant goes, and, and rightly so. Um, and it's you know, it's great. It's great for everyone involved, isn't it? Especially if they're, you know, Glaswegian or, or Scottish in general. And then we're just trying to emulate the Lisbon Lions, aren't we? Uh, yeah. You know, if we can get any, anywhere close to that and, and, and try and have success, such success with, with local players and, and, and locally born talent, well, then, you know, that's that's the aim, isn't it? Well, Oliver, thanks very much for your time. It's been a fascinating sight and hopefully people have learned a lot more about sports science and what goes on at the club. As I say, thanks for your time and you seem to be doing a great job, mate. The the strides that are taken at the club, hopefully we get to see a lot more players come through and maybe in five years' time when we've seen players come through, they'll know it was Oliver Morgan that helped them come through and got them there. Well, thanks very much for getting me on, Martin. It's been my pleasure and... And I must say, I've thoroughly enjoyed my time so far at Celtic and uh, you know, long may it continue. And, and like I said, whatever small impact we can have, I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll, we'll do our best to, to make sure we can. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.